Cause we got the alternative energy Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show I'm Michaela and on today's program We're going to be speaking to two incredible anti-nuclear activists and regular guests of the Radioactive Show, Dr. Jim Green, the National Anti-Nuclear Campaigner with Friends of the Earth Australia, and Mia Pepper, Nuclear Free Campaigner with the Conservation Council of Western Australia. And we're going to be hearing about some of the big issues in this continent that we will be covering on the Radioactive Show across the year. So let's go straight to Dr. Jim Green. Welcome to the Radioactive Show, Jim. Thanks, Michaela. Earlier this year, in January, you put the submission into the Senate Environment and Communications Legislation Committee for the inquiry into the Environment and Other Legislation Amendment, Removing Nuclear Energy Prohibitions Bill of 2022. Uh, Tell us what was the focus of the submission. 20 years or so, conservative coalition MPs have been talking about how legislation banning nuclear power in Australia should be repealed, but coalition governments have never repealed that legislation. But I think we're in a new phase of this nuclear power debate in Australia where the coalition is so gung-ho about nuclear power that it seems very likely that they'll go to the next federal election with the policy of repealing those legal bans. So they're really stepping it up and uh, was in that context that a private member's bill was introduced to Parliament to repeal those uh, legal bans against nuclear power. And this is a Senate inquiry arising out of that bill. Uh, So it's pretty interesting. I mean, of course, we've got a Labor government now and Labor, uh, Labor for all its faults, has been clear about opposing nuclear power in Australia. So I would assume it's going to end up being a fairly friendly report uh, but anyway, um, Friends of the Earth, alongside 10 other national and state and territory environment groups, put it, put together a submission, which is the best part of 100 pages, uh, and we hope to be speaking to the inquiry. Uh, so we'll just have to see how it plays out after that. Yeah, it feels strange to be still having all these conversations, but I guess that shows the power of the pro-nuclear lobby to keep pushing ahead with these technologies even when everything's against it. I know, it's just crazy. I mean, even the coalition says uh, large conventional reactors, nuclear power reactors, should not be allowed in Australia and they're quite happy with legal bans against uh, large conventional nuclear power, but... They want to open the door to so-called advanced nuclear power, also known as Generation 4. But these are all the uh, reactor nuclear power concepts that have been tried and tested and failed and that essentially have no meaningful existence now. Uh, The flavour of the month is so-called small modular reactors. Uh, there's only a couple of them in the whole world and they're not really modular anyway and they were years behind schedule and uh, the budget for the Chinese one doubled and the budget for the Russian one increased by a factor of six. So it's all pie-in-the-sky stuff, but it's important, I think, to keep in mind that the most 
strident advocates of nuclear power within the coalition are also the ones who are absolutely hostile towards renewable energy, presumably for ideological reasons, and they're also the most strident supporters of Australia's fossil fuel industries. So their argument that we need nuclear power to reduce greenhouse emissions falls flat on their face because these are the people who are doing everything they can to stop Australia reducing our greenhouse emissions. Yeah. As part of the Sustainable Living Festival, you've got a forum on nuclear power and climate change. Tell us what's planned for that and why we still need to have those conversations in these kind of spaces. Uh, yeah, well, I guess that ties neatly on from what we're just talking about. There's still this push from the coalition and the Murdoch media, including Sky News, to promote nuclear power. So for so long as they keep promoting it, I feel that we need to keep responding to it and we need to make sure that environmentalists and climate activists and everyone concerned about climate change understands that nuclear power is not only not a practical or effective solution, but that it will actually worsen Australia's greenhouse emissions primarily because of the opportunity parts, because we can build renewables much cheaper and much more quickly. So, yeah, we're having this forum. It's an online forum, so anyone can join in from anywhere around Australia. For people who want to look up the details, uh, the front page of our Friends of the Earth nuclear website and the uh, URL is nuclear.foe.org.au. And it's Saturday the 25th at 1pm Victorian time. Great. And I guess the other significant aspect of nuclear power is the dangers posed by nuclear power plants in these times of more frequent extreme weather events, but also in uh, times of war and conflict. And we saw at the end of January the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists move the doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight, so the closest to midnight that it's ever been. And they attributed that change to the situation with the war in Ukraine. Can you just bring us up to date on that scenario? Yeah, um, so it's been a bit of a holding pattern. Uh, We've still got Russian troops at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine. Uh, That's the one that Russian troops... uh, bombed and occupied uh, about nine, ten months ago and they've repeatedly lost uh, off-site mains electricity to that nuclear power plant, which is a a massive problem because if you don't have power, uh, then your water pumps aren't working and if you don't have water pumps, then you get a nuclear meltdown just as soon as night follows day. So they've lost mains electricity and they've had to rely on backup diesel generators and that has worked okay so far but gee they're really testing their luck Uh, and there have been similar problems at other nuclear power plants in Ukraine there were four altogether with a total of 15 reactors Um, anyway all we can do is cross our fingers because it's still an incredibly dangerous and volatile situation Um, with the electricity supply water supply the adequacy of backup diesel generators, the adequacy of 
replacement diesel fuel for those generators. Um, so, yeah, we've got through the first year of this hideous war without a nuclear catastrophe, but it's more through good luck than good management. And the longer it goes on, the higher the risk that sooner or later there is going to be a disaster. And it's just unthinkable having a... Uh, a Fukushima-scale nuclear disaster on top of all the horrors of this war. And uh, the efforts to improve and resolve the situation have been fairly ineffective. I think there are some staff from the International Economic Agency located at the Hakurajia nuclear power plant, but, you know, that doesn't really necessarily improve the conditions. Uh, so, yeah, it is really dangerous. And the most bizarre thing of this is this should really be the wake-up call for the whole world to cut nuclear power and replace it with renewables and energy efficiency and conservation and so on. But it's had the opposite effect so far, only to a very limited degree. But, for example, the nuclear power phase-out programs in, in Germany and Belgium have been deferred a few years, so it really makes very little difference. But, um, yeah, we'll have to also look at the long-term consequences of this. Logically, there would well, the most logical thing of all would be to phase out nuclear power. The next most logical thing would, to be have, would be to invest in much more rigorous security arrangements so that when these sorts of situations arise, there's a... There's very little or no risk of nuclear meltdowns, and that would increase the cost of nuclear power, which would be disastrous for the industry, extremely expensive. Yeah. So how are things looking for nuclear power globally? Well, it's very, very sick. Uh, we've just got the numbers for last year, and the growth of nuclear power was about two or three gigawatts which is essentially nothing, and the growth for renewable energy around the world was 300 gigawatts, 320 to be precise. So the growth of renewables outstripped the growth of nuclear power by a factor of 100. So, you know, it's really game over. Nuclear power has got so expensive and so complex that it's not in the discussion anymore, really, except for ideologues. Uh, such as we see amongst the Australian Coalition and, and the Murdoch press. But, yeah, looking very, very sick. Mm, great. That's good news. And so having a look to what is going to be big for the anti-nuclear movement in so-called Australia this year, what have we got coming up? Well, there's the nuclear power debate, which we talked about earlier. Uh, there are still some ongoing struggles over new uranium mines, particularly in Western Australia, and the remediation of old uranium mines, particularly in the Northern Territory. Uh, but as always, it feels like Groundhog Day. We're always fighting uh, plans for an unwanted imposition of a national nuclear waste dump on Aboriginal land. As you know, Michaela, we've been doing that for about the last 25 years. And Currently, the community that's being targeted are the Bangala traditional owners in South Australia. Their land is on the Air Peninsula, and uh, they are unanimous in their opposition to this planned national nuclear waste dump. Uh, they were ignored by the Morrison government, and now, unfortunately, they're being ignored by the Albanese government. So they have taken legal action, and that's coming to a head. There's a, a five-day trial 
uh, which or hearing, which begins on March the 6th here in Adelaide. Um, so we'll have to see how that goes. That's challenging the legal validity of the government's declaration of this nuclear waste dump site and also challenging some of the constitutional aspects of the whole debate. Uh, and in addition to the legal campaign, of course, we, we've got a, a community campaign and we're doing our best to get media and uh, doing everything we can to support the Bangala traditional owners and also the, uh, the farmers who are in the firing line for this proposed nuclear waste dump. Okay, great. And what's the best way people can stay up to date and get involved with that campaign? A really good idea, especially for people in Victoria, but also anywhere else around Australia, is to sign up for the occasional newsletters produced by the Nuclear Free Collective in Friends of the Earth Melbourne. So you could get find them through the uh, through the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website pretty easily. Uh, also, we've got a lot of information up on our Friends of the Earth Australia website. That's nuclear.fo.org.au. Uh, yeah, and uh, there's always call-outs for funding support for the Bangala traditional owners because they've got huge legal fees and campaign expenses and they're really being stretched. It's a David and Goliath battle because the federal government could put unlimited millions of dollars into this battle and they have. The, the government spent $10 million on legal fees alone so it's, an, it's a disgrace and it's completely unfair but... Financial support is always welcome. Anyone in or around Adelaide, we'd love to see you at the front of the court case uh, on the corner of King William Street and Angus Street on the morning of March the 6th and sign up for the newsletters at Friends of the Earth Melbourne to, to keep updated. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jim. No worries. Thanks, Michaela. And that was Jim Green, National Anti-Nuclear Campaigner with Friends of the Earth Australia. And to sign up to get updates on all the activities that are coming up, you can go to melbournefoe.org.au forward slash nuclear. And the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne will keep you up to date on all those things that are happening and ways to get involved. We're going to go now to a little bit of music with Archie Roach. It's not too late. I'm so sorry for the world today With all the killing and all the hate I get down on my knees and pray that it's not too late That it's not too late for peace And it's not too late for love For all the children everywhere I ask the old ones up above Won't you hear Deep within our children's eyes It's it. 
tuned to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. And we're broadcasting nationally thanks to the Community Radio Network. Up next, we get an update on what's happening with the nuclear industry in Western Australia with Mia Pepper. Thanks so much for joining us on The Radioactive Show. Thanks for having me. Firstly, to get a bit of an update on what's been happening in Western Australia, I thought maybe we could start by talking about the missing radioactive capsule that has been a bit of a headline nationally. How has that impacted the focus on nuclear and radioactive issues in Western Australia? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a really interesting one in terms of how much attention it got, I mean, how dangerous the cesium capsule is um, and just, you know, it's really exposed a gap in, in how seriously people take radiation safety. Um, but also I think, Sean, a bit of a light on on um, where there might be some gaps within the capacity of our regulators to track and monitor and, and really hold the industry to account in how they manage uh, radioactive materials. So these gauges um, that operate at mining sites across the state, there are really thousands of them, and each one requires a radiation management plan to operate at a mine site. Um, and really that's, that's a big task to regulate each and every single one of those gauges, and there are thousands. So. Yeah, it's a big issue and I think um, increasingly in WA, outside of uranium mining, um, there are radiation issues at mine sites because there is lots of naturally occurring radioactive materials. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, more generally there needs to be a retake, a refresh look at the regulators and their capacity to effectively manage the risks. Mm, interesting. And so on the uranium mining front, I know that you are getting ready to launch a book that's celebrating 50 years of resistance to the Ulyri uranium mine. How's that work been? Oh, it's been a really incredible process. Like uh, we probably started talking about the book two or three years ago and, um, you know, so many people have got their fingerprints on this book in terms of pulling it together and um, and artists that have contributed photographs, campaigners that have, you know, worked tirelessly for years on the campaign. Um, but, you know, the, I think probably the most exciting part of the book has been talking to people in the community and, and recording their stories about Ulyri and about growing up out on the stations at Ulyri and Albion Downs and, um, you know, some. It's, it was a pretty pretty unique point in history, I think, back in the 1970s um, when, when the uranium was first discovered. And so hearing some of those stories about what life was like and, and, um, and the response and reaction from their old people um, around both like the significance of the site and keeping those stories protected and keeping those sites protected 
um, while also responding to this this huge and a kind of new understanding about what uranium is and how it's used in the modern world. Um, so yeah, it's been a really great process pulling together this book, and there's great contributions from so many different people. So um, one of the anthropologists who was out there in the 1970s, he's written a huge story, um, which is really really interesting. Um, then there's also a story from one of the uh, taxonomists who did the original surveys on the subterranean fauna when BHP did the studies, I think in 2009 and 2010. Um, there's a story from one of the lawyers who worked on the case um, challenging the minister's approval for the mine. And then there's stories from campaigners and traditional owners um, out at the site. So yeah, it's a you know diverse collection of stories some really beautiful images and we're really excited to, to launch it. Wow, that's fantastic. And for people around the continent who won't be able to get to that book launch, how can they get hold of a copy? So we're launching the book on the 19th of March and from that date you'll be able to order a book through the Conservation Council of WA's website and we can post it out to you. Um, for folks in Melbourne, we're hoping to link up with their new internationalist bookshop at Trades Hall, um, so you should be able to pick up a copy there. And if, yeah, if you're in Perth, there'll be this great event where you can pre-order a copy and pick it up at the rooftop cinema in Northbridge. Mm, fantastic. And it's such a fantastic story, even though it's been an incredibly long struggle. Yeah, so the campaign to stop Hilary has kind of come to a head. The fight's not over, but the fight's kind of at a pretty critical point where it, it can't go ahead. So it was approved under the former Liberal government, state and then federal, um, but that approval had a condition that they had to substantially commence mining within five years. And that five years has been and gone. So January 2021, their licence their approval, sorry, expired, in that they can't enact any of it. So the condition prevents them from mining, but they can ask for an amendment, and they did last year, and the Labor state government here in WA who are opposed to uranium mining said no. So that approval, that, that request to kind of extend the approval wasn't granted, but as it stands, they can ask again and again and again. And if a future liberal pro-nuclear government comes to power in the West, um, it would be a stroke of a pen and they'd be up and running again. So mm. um, kind of where we're at with Yuliri is campaigning now for this Labor government to completely withdraw the approval. And they have the powers to do that. There's a, a new provision in the West Australian Environmental Protection Act which gives the Minister a power to revoke an approval where the company hasn't substantially commenced mining. So we're calling on the government to do that, and that's the case for Yuliri, but it's also the case at the proposed Waluna uranium mine and the proposed Kintyre uranium mine. So all three of the mines, those mines were approved and expired and are now kind of in this kind of status, hiatus where they can't, they can't be advanced. Mm, that's good. And I guess, is that something that you'll be calling on people to support or is it more just working with the relevant politicians to 
get that over the line? So last year we launched a thing called the Iranian Free Charter which called on the state government to withdraw the approvals um, under that, that Section 47A provision in the Environmental Protection Act and we got thousands of people signing up to that and 25 organisations including some of the key trade unions in WA, health, faith, First Nations and environment groups. So now we're, you know, we're continuing to lobby the government we think that it's something that they can and should and would potentially do. It's the first time that anyone would have used this new part of the Act so we can understand a little bit that there's some apprehension from the state government to do it and at least they want to understand the implications of, of using that part of the Act. But they need some convincing and they need a push from the public. So, um, yeah, we're definitely calling on our supporters to make a noise on this and to encourage this government to withdraw those approvals. Mm, excellent. And that brings us then to Mulgara. Where do things stand with that proposal now? So the, the Mulgara Uranium Project has met that substantial commencement condition I was talking about before, which means that there's really not very many opportunities left in a procedural way to stop this mine, which is really unfortunate. We're looking for any any way possible. They've been putting in applications for works approvals and getting them, which is unfortunate. They've been clearing, they've been laying pipe and advancing different kind of approvals that they need. They still need some, but yesterday, unfortunately, they got approval for their Sandhill Dunnart Conservation Plan, which is which is really upsetting because of lots of reasons. But one, it's not it's not a real plan to protect the species at the site. It's an offset. So they've created a conservation area where they'll do a whole range of things to um, monitor and um, kill pests and, and potential predators like cats. Um, but it's not an overall strategy to, um, you know, to not impact this species, which is endangered. Um, so we're, we're also upset about it because the federal government ha- is still yet to approve a national recovery plan for the Sandhill Dunner. So we see that this approval for the, for the um, Mulga Rock Project's um, Sandhill Dunner plan is preemptive and not necessarily consistent with what's in the national recovery plan, um, which is, yeah as I said, yet to be finalised. But at the end of the day, you know, this this project puts that species at risk. It's already at risk. There are other other kind of mines popping up all over the place. Um, the industrialisation of that part of Australia is, is really going to push the Sandhill Dunner and other species to the brink and we're really concerned about, about that. Yeah, so Mulga Rock is advancing, but it's not... It's not there yet, and I guess the thing that's that's really holding it back at the moment is that the company doesn't have the finance to actually develop the mine. So they're doing, you know, a little bit, little bit, little bit, but they don't have the funding to actually kick this mine off. And I don't think they would anyway because the CEO, John Borshoff, who many of your listeners will remember from Paladin, um, has has really said he's not interested in opening this mine unless the uranium price increases a lot. Um, 
So, you know, talking 65, 70 US a pound as a contract price, a price where utilities will, you know, say we'll pay you this much for the next 10 years. And it's not there yet. There's no way that they're getting that contract price. So they're redoing a definitive feasibility study for the Mogul Rock project. And this will be the third definitive feasibility study for the project. And they've deferred that till mid-2024. So in terms of like this mine actually getting off the ground, we won't see anything, I think, until mid-2024 except these smaller approvals that they can get in between, um, which we're tracking and, and responding to as much as we can. All right. Well, is there anything else that we should be looking out for in the coming year, things you want to draw people's attention to? Yeah, in WA, we're going to keep motoring along and looking out for Mogul Rock, trying to push to get these approvals withdrawn. It's not a very flashy, yelly, protesty kind of period in the campaign. We're just tracking things and responding where we can. But at the end of the day, we're really just calling out for people to um, you know, read this book, get this book, The Yaliri 50 Years of Resistance, because in it is a really good and positive story about unity and strength and um, that resilience. And there's lots of lessons in there for other campaigns and hopefully a bit of inspiration to just keep on going. You know, these fights are long fights and um, sometimes they're really busy and sometimes you get little quiet patches and um, we just got to stay in it. And I think that's, that's part of this book. And so hopefully, yeah, the Radioactive Show listeners will just kind of stick with us. Well, on that note about sticking with us and strength in unity, we are in our subscriber drive. So is there anything you'd like to say to listeners to the show, particularly Mm. having been a producer of the Radioactive Show in the past about supporting 3CR by subscribing to our show? Yeah, well, Radioactive Show listeners... Please support the Radioactive Show because this, you know, dedicated, incredible and diverse group of people volunteer to reach out to communities affected by the nuclear industry and gives them a platform to have a voice and to share their stories. You know, it's with your support that they're able to do that. And so I just really encourage you to donate to keep the Radioactive Show on the airwaves. And that was Mia Pepper from the Conservation Council of Western Australia. And to stay up to date with all that they're doing, go to ccwa.org.au forward slash nuclearfreewa. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Radioactive Show and thanks to the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne for their ongoing support. To listen back to this show or any of our other programs, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. Tune in to our show again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues.